Magic people, voodoo people, all this and more on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Amber New Moon. Sugar in the apple. Voodoo hoodoo, how much will you do? Settle in, it's time for this week's This Week in Retro. <laughs> Up to date news for out of date tech. Good day, folks. Look who it is. Is that you, Chris? Yeah, it's me, Chris, from Australia. <laughs> something slightly off. I don't know if it's the webcam, but something slightly off this week, Chris. Um, it's, it's Dave, of course, joining us in a um, in an authentic Australian hat. Oh, yes. Certainly not I understand that all Australians wear these. Yeah, it's not something you've picked up very cheaply on eBay at the last minute, I can oh, tell. Oh, no, 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 no. And we're also joined today by Ian, who uh, hails from Germany. Hello, Ian. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. And um, this is really nice because we've always made it our aim on this show to get worldviews, to get insights into different people's backgrounds around the world and, and different um, pieces of computer history from different parts of the world. And we've got Ian here with um, with a, a German. Let, let's just check that he's not the German Chris. You did actually grow yeah. up in Germany, didn't you, Ian? You, you, you oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really did. I really did. And uh, a small village near um, Rammstein Air Base, maybe that's something more international internationally known. Yeah. The music, yeah. That's the music. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the music group too. And yeah, and of course the accident in the 80s, but yeah, that was Rammstein. No, I don't. I I can't place that on a map. So did southwestern, you, southwestern, southwestern. Germany, so yeah. so you grew up in West Germany before it was unified. Is that? Correct? Oh yes, oh yes, yeah. oh yes. But I I have relatives. I I still have relatives um, in East Germany because my grandfather originally hailed from there and he came to our side of the of the wall after the war. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Well, there's all sorts of history that I'm sure we can dig into um, on that side of things. Dave, just tell us about your week before we get into this week's story. How's it been going? Well, um, before we do that, Ian Dasker Foot Zugeben, Velkommen Zuzin, Die Folger Dieser Woche wird Komplett auf Deutsching. Neil, as du geut? Ian has just got a blank look on his face. Because that's how bad my German is. Someone explain what just happened. Dein Deutsch ist sehr gut. What did it, Ian? Were you able to understand what I said? Um, yeah, once I figured out that you meant to speak German, I actually got a bit, a little bit, but, I, but it took me a while to, I first thought you were speaking Gaelish or something. <laughs> oh, nice try, nice try, Dave. What I said was, to, to welcome Ian, we'll do the entire show in German. Have you been oh, practicing, Neil? Nine. <laughs> Nine. <laughs> Nine. Nine times. Nine. <laughs> <laughs> It is RPG week for me. Chris is away. Neil's an RPG fan. Ian's an RPG fan. I'm an RPG fan. So I've been watching. Um, I've been watching a video on Dark Earth from Rose Tinted. Uh, Rose Tinted Spectrum did a video on Dark Earth, which is a game I meant to play, and now I won't after watching his video. Um, I've got a podcast to listen to on Albion, which is really quite linked to what we'll talk about later on. Uh, there we go, Albion. Um, DOS Game Club, um, one of my favourite podcasts. They do a really deep dive into a game. They'll do a podcast for two or three hours, and they've done Albion. Um, and they've also interviewed a couple of developers from it as well. Uh, I probably finished playing Dwarf Fortress, um, and I watched your Burger Becky tea break. Uh, oh, yeah. Tea break is supposed to be 15 minutes, was it, Neil? 15 minutes long? <laughs> this yes. went over ran, didn't it? Retro Two hours breaks. long did start out, and I feel sorry for some of the earlier guests. It started out as a podcast that was supposed to be 15 minutes long, a tea break, the time it took to, to have a cup of tea. Um, so some of those early guests, like the Oliver Twins, you know, they got 15 minutes each, and that was it. And then fast forward a couple of years to Burger Becky, and we spoke for over two and a half hours when we recorded it. I edited it down to about two hours, but yeah, there was an awful lot in there. And it was so long because I didn't feel like there was much I could cut out, to be honest. It was such a fascinating story that she had to tell. It's a shame to cut anything. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, and for people who don't know, she was involved in so many 
important role-playing games, Bard's Tale, Interplay and all the rest of it. Um, and all the way through watching that, I was thinking to myself, Neil is absolutely bursting to <laughs> talk himself about things. And you can't, and if you if you watch it, you may not notice it until you really think about it, but Neil doesn't share his own experiences in it. And that's it. It's, it's two hours of, of, of her talking about things. You must have been sitting there. This, this must be a relief for you in this podcast because you can give your opinion. Yeah, just get it all out. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, it's not about me, the tea breaks. I, I just want people to have a chance to tell their stories. Um, to the point where I try and craft my questions to be as short and as open as possible because nobody mm. likes to hear the person questioning ramble on and and almost try and show off about their own experience or their own skills in the question. Um, Ian just threw something on the floor. What was that, Ian? Oh, that, that was, <laughs> was it expensive? No, nah, nothing happened, but it was my still sealed copy of Albion. Oh, no. <laughs> Throw it on the floor. Throw it on yeah. the floor. Um, yeah, so I, I tried not to make my questions too long. And then um, if you look very carefully when there's a retro tea break at, at me down in the bottom corner, which is who you're not supposed to be watching at all, often I will say something or I'll say yes or I'll say mm, or go on. And you won't hear that because I even cut that out of my audio track because I, I don't want people to be annoyed or frustrated or interrupted by me. And I just want people to, to flow and speak. So um, that works really well, I think. And in, Ber in, in Burger Becky, um, Rebecca Heinemann, to give her <laughs> proper name. Her nickname is Burger. <laughs> her own website is Burger Becky. You can't, you can't worry about that. <laughs> yeah. It goes back to a story of her keeping um, old, <laughs> old hamburgers in her office drawer and <laughs> pulling them out to eat when she got hungry anyway um yeah really enjoyed making it and you're right it is nice to come onto this show and uh share my opinions where people expect to hear me share my opinions it's the right time in the right place for it um yeah my week's been pretty good this week though um i've been really enjoying the nintendo play choice 10 arcade which i picked up recently and i'm gonna make an episode on that this week i've been researching mm -hmm. that today um and when I got it, I put out an appeal to anyone who might be able to put me um, in touch with someone who has a Sega Megatech arcade, which is where the PlayChoice 10 is a Nintendo NES in an arcade machine. The Sega Megatech is a um, Sega Mega Drive or Genesis in an arcade machine. And you put money in and it gives you time. The more money you put in, the more time you have to play on these. Absolutely ridiculous arcade. Uh, only insane people would have put their money in them when you've got real arcade machines around them back in the day. Uh, but in the context of the cave, it's just nice to offer people a different way to play on these systems. So I'm hoping to go and pick up a Sega Megatech 16 very soon. Uh, it's down in Cornwall, so it's going to be a bit of a drive, but I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Um, Dave, do you have any housekeeping this week? If so, I can queue up um, a jingle. Yes. Okay. It's housekeeping. Jingle me up. Two. The wonderful. Two. Wonderful. Oh, it is you, Dave. The hat's come off. Yes, I'm no longer Chris. Um, I'd like to welcome four new patrons who have subscribed to us on Patreon in the last week. So thank you very, very much to Danny, Jessica, Mark, and Carl. Thank you. Um, Patreon.com slash This Week in Retro if you'd like to join them. But thank you very much. Uh, and a submission which isn't really um, an event for us to discuss, but it did really make me smile. And the subreddit did like it. Sybil66 posted that they're finally reunited with a Beeb. They've got a BBC Model B. It's in lovely condition. And even the ROM patch beside the keyboard hasn't been poked <laughs> out. Um, so no school code, school code has wrecked it. Ian, there was a, a, an add-on port on the front of the BBC Micro, and it was kind of it was perforated so that you could push it out. And they went into schools, and of course, the first thing every school kid did was shove their fingers into it and break it. So it's unusual to find one that hasn't happened. So I hope that you've checked the PSU caps before you turned on the BBC, and it didn't blow up. Mm. That's a good question for Ian, actually. Ian, was there a standard school computer that schools had in Germany when you were growing up? Most of us had C64s from Commodore, at least in my region. And uh, only a few of us had uh, Amigas, Amiga mm -hmm. 500s. I had one in um, later. I, I mean, I got my first computer uh, when I was like uh, 10 years old, sure. or 9, 10. And um, the Amiga 500 was then two years later. And they would have been in your classrooms as well? 
Oh, um, no. Yeah. In our classrooms, okay. I only know um, PCs. PCs. PCs and uh, we only got them when I was like uh, f uh, leaving school already uh, nearly like the 10th grade 9th or 10th grade so but when I started school there was no um, not really much computers in schools yet but at home um, I think uh, it's fair to say it's quite well known just how much Germany loved its Amigas and its Commodore 64 was a big following for those oh, yes. machines over oh, there yes. yeah. I Atari ST uh, well, Ian, was there love for the Atari ST in Germany? I actually only knew about the Atari ST because in the old computer uh, uh, where you catalogs where you bought your games, there was also a, a line for Atari ST. So I, I never, I never even seen one back then. So, but maybe in in other regions of Germany, it's just I mean there was no internet, so we were quite uh, isolated communities <laughs> back in the day. You know. <laughs> There you go, Dave. Does that does that help you, Dave? Yes, uh, the, the the Mega ST was popular in in, in Germany. Uh, the the ST was popular. But also, the last thing in housekeeping for this week is I have booked two more guests. Um, we're trying to get an international flavour here, so no British people allowed. Uh, I've got two Americans booked in, and I've got another one that I'm trying to book in at the moment. So look forward to to those. And the only clue I'll give you for next week's guest is farts. Uh, who? Sorry? What, what was that? Farts. Farts. Oh, <laughs> I think I can guess. Well, you know who it is, so yeah, I, I hope you can. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, should we go into our first story? Yes, we should. Okay. The early 90s was a golden age for computer role-playing games. The genre itself is ancient. You can find... P-Edit 5, which was known as The Dungeon, back in 1975 on Plato. Uh, that's, as far as I can see, it's the earliest one. Um, you could probably say it's closest to a roguelike game, although it's clear that Akalabeth and Ultima roots are there too. They all started from, this, from that kind of place um, before the series went kind of a different way than roguelike games. So they've been around nearly as long as tabletop role-playing games, which is a bit of a surprise for me. I thought the computer ones would come much later, but they didn't. Chainmail is probably the first um, role-playing game, arguably because it's it's, it's it's a tabletop game, but it evolved into D&D. Chainmail is what, what became renamed to D&D. And the first role-playing game that I played on the computer was The Bard's Tale, or Tales of the Unknown, as it was known of at the time, which Burger Becky worked on. Um, for me, I love storytelling. I love a narrative. I, I mentioned the fighting fantasy books before, and I love RPGs, fantasy novels, um, computer RPGs, and text adventures. But early ones lacked a lot of the storytelling. So that's for for me. That's why I liked uh, the Bar Steel because that 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 had the storytelling. They're okay, not in great depth, but it had the storytelling. But we were actually kind of starved for them in the UK compared to the US. Uh, and I'm not sure why. Uh, were computers seen as more of a kid's thing here than in the US? And were RPGs for an older audience? I'm not sure. But I've done a bit of a rabbit hole and even looking in Amst into Amstrad CPC games, which is the, the first computer that I had, also the one that Neil had, um, there's hardly any. Uh, there's hardly any RPGs on it. And, and most of the ones that are there are in French. A few more appear after the Bar's Tale appeared. Um, but Ian, what was the first role-playing game that you played? I'm kind of curious if you know this one. It was um, on C64 and it was called Mars Saga. And um, it was ported to the computer, to, to, the, to the PC under a different name. It, it was called Minds of Titan there. But Mars Saga is the old C64 version and it's, it's a role-playing game on Mars. You create your characters, you, you have a storyline and it's I loved it. it. It has one of the most... You have it. I just thought <laughs> I forgot mine in the in the other house. So that's great. You have it. That's so amazing. Yeah. D did you play it? Do, do you know the music, Dave? No, I, I've 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 hardly I've not played it much. I've loaded it up and I've played it a little bit. But but you know the, the music then. It's it's yeah it's the music. It, it's the Commodore sixty four version. I've got yes exactly it's an EA game exactly. It's, it's it's a bit in the style of 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 the Bard's Tale. Um, exactly. It's that yeah. kind of. Um, 
it's very much the style of Ars Tale. Um, but yeah, I've played it briefly, but I'm waiting until I get a, a working C64 board to play it properly. There's a small anecdote I, I really have to tell now because it's something um, translation from German to English also. And I was uh, mostly growing up by my grandparents and I played this game on a friend's, on a cousin's house. And when I when I got home and told my grandmother, um, yeah, I played computer today, I, I was five or six years old um, then. Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, I played Mars Saga. Yeah. And you, in Germany, the word massacre is like your massacre in, in, in English too. <laughs> so, my, so my grandmother immediately called my friend's house and so told his mother what brutal games the older friend of me played with little old me, right? <laughs> because we played massacre. <laughs> yeah, that was. I, I always remember that. Dave, Dave, when you pulled that off the shelf and spoke about it there, Dave, you spoke about it as if you didn't play it back in the day. It's more of a modern no, no, day no, purchase. No. So, no, what is no. it that prompted you to buy that game? Um, I'm reading about it. I like the box art as well. Oh, uh, yeah. but reading about it, but knowing it, it, it's it's an it's an EA game. It's Bard's Tale style. It's well spoken about, well reviewed. I saw it on eBay and I thought. I want that. So I've, I've played it briefly on an emulator for maybe five or ten minutes, but I'll wait until I get a proper C64 running up and do it properly. Nice. And it's developed, um, I'm just reading up on it here, it's developed by Westwood Associates. Yes. So it's got yes. that nice link back to Westwood. Yeah. yeah. Westwood went on to do Eye of the Beholder. So this is what they did before they did Eye of the Beholder. Uh, Eye of the Beholder, then Dune 2, um, Command and Conquer. Lots of great games. Oh, Command and Conquer, yeah. So that was your first role-playing game. Neil, what was yours? Well, um, I don't remember playing any RPGs specifically on the Amstrad CPC. Um, I'm sure there were some about, but as you've said, you looked into it and you couldn't see many. In fact, I was probably more likely to see letters coming through the door trying to get me to play RPGs by the by mail um, than on the <laughs> CPC. <laughs> I remember those coming through, but nothing on my Amstrad. So my first RPG was probably something like Eye of the Beholder, or do you remember Draken on the Amiga, which had this kind of interesting mix of 3D landscapes? It was almost like they'd combined a flight sim with sprite-based characters, but it gave you these vast landscapes with rivers and bridges and castles that you could walk around and explore, um, which I, I quite like the sense of scale in that game. And it was an alternative to the more traditional top-down Ultima-style mm -hmm. dungeon crawling, which yeah. was quite nice. Um, yeah, so probably one of those two, I would, I would guess. Yeah. So by the time I got the Bard's Tale, I'd played quite a few text adventures. I guess they were really easy to port to the CPC compared to other games. So they got ports, whereas other games, maybe they didn't feel the market was there for it. And then I moved on to the Atari ST and, of course, maybe the best ST game ever, Dungeon Master. Um, everybody must have played Dungeon Master, I'm sure. Uh, and a few years later, and Ultima 6 on the de on the ST was a disc-swapping chore. Neil reminded me a while back about the whole decompression thing, which I'd totally forgotten about. You bought the game, you opened the box, you took the discs out, and you had to do this laborious exercise where you created other discs that decompressed the information on the discs that you got. Um, mm. But the disc-swapping was a pain. Uh, yeah. And an early... Neil, you, you, you've added a wee note here. How do you stop the disk swapping? <laughs> well, yeah, the decompression method was a bit... It was a bit like installing to hard disk, but you were simply installing from floppy disks to other floppy disks, which is a bit weird. Um, but, yeah, I discovered that if you turned the music off and you had two disk drives, this was on the Amiga version, I could play most of the game on those two disks. It was only if the music changed, it would then ask me to put another disc in to load another uh, another song. So I could get that disc swapping down by just turning the music off. But that wasn't a great thing to do because the music's a lovely part of yeah. Ultima. Yeah. So yeah, wasn't great. In 1993, in early 1993, I got a PC. And of course, it had a hard disc. And that was RPG heaven. Not only did I have access to games that worked from the hard disk, but I had access to all sorts of role-playing games which just didn't really exist on the ST and certainly not in the CPC. And that was when a real a real golden age started. Um, and just off the top of my head, I, I noted down some games I could think of, Betrayal at Crondor, Daggerfall, Wizardry 7, Ultima Wonder, uh, Underworld 1 and 2, Ultima 6, 7, 8, Dungeon Hack, Eye of the Beholder series, Might and Magic, Albion, Dungeon Master 2. There's just loads of them. 
And there's only more of them as you go through the 90s. A combination of better graphical power, better sound, and sometimes even speech. But I think mostly hard disks are what gave us a golden age. But today's story is about a game I've not played, and there's a good reason I've not played it. Uh, now, the game itself is an Amiga game, but it's actually from Thalion Software. And they're a German company that started off from the Atari ST demo scene. So it's really an Atari ST game in spirit. Uh, games <laughs> like, no, it is, it is. Chambers of Shaolin, Lethal Excess, No Second Prize, they're all great games and some real pushing of the hardware from Thalion there. Sadly, they went bust in 1994 and that resulted in the cancellation of the, the Atari ST Falcon and PC ports of Amber Moon and only the German Amiga version of Amber Moon actually made it to the shops. And is that what is that what Ian was holding up earlier of Amber Moon? Is that the Amiga version? Oh, yes, of course, yeah. Yeah. It's only... You mean the only one that made it to the shops, yes. Yes, yes. Yeah. and it's sealed? The only one that exists. Yeah. That's sealed as new, Ian? No, um, sealed is Albion. That's a kind of spiritual successor of Amber Moon. Right. Amber Moon is a sequel to Amber Star which was sort of an unofficial sequel to their, their first role-playing game, Dragonflight. And the game is a... There you go. Ian's got them all. He's a fan. <laughs> yeah, I, de I definitely am, yeah. The game is a, a role-playing game dungeon crawler with multiple dungeons and an overhead map. So while in Dungeon Master, it's just one dungeon, you're in the idea with, with this game is there's several, and you can, you can go between them. Uh, battles are tactical and turn-based. And unlike the previous two games, so unlike Amber Star and Dragonflight, um, Amber Moon was free movement rather than flip tiles that you get. The kind of Dungeon Master style movement, it's flip tiles. Um, I've frequently seen it being said to be the best Amiga role-playing game, and I've not played it yet, so I'll find out eventually when I get an Amiga working. Uh, Ian is not quite... Is it the best Amiga game? I kind of, um, it, it's hard to compare because Ultima 6 is also available on Amiga, right? Mm -hmm. Ultima yes. 6 is, is uh, and Ember and Moon. Uh, I mean, it's it's definitely, for me, it's 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 the same, it's it's the same, uh, yeah, as good, as good as. Okay, okay. That's, and that's um, high price. Amber, Amber Moon is the only one that you really had, or you, you had to, at least in the past, go to the Amiga to play. Um, but what's fascinating for me is that, is a rewrite and what the rewrite brings to the table. It gets a game from a niche platform, and no offence to Amiga, but in 1993, the Amiga wasn't what you bought if you wanted to play role-playing games. You bought a PC um, to the mainstream to make it easier to get your hands on it, and it also brings enhancements. So it's a trilogy of games, and either it's a trilogy if you include Dragonflight or the sequel that was never written, uh, that came out after I left the ST. That they were they were for the ST. I mean, the the lead platform on um, Amber Moon was the ST, but because the ST games market really folded so badly, they switched to being the Amiga, being the the main platform for it, and that's why you got the Amiga release. Um, and the other one is is Ishar. Uh, Ishar is a French trilogy from Simarils that came out around the same time on the ST, PC, and Amiga. And there we are, one. <laughs> two has he got the third one yes he has yes he I has I, I just want to start saying the names of random games to see if ian will just reach down and pick them <laughs> make up again then we would have to go we would have to go to another room <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I have i i have sr one two and three i've not played them either because they came out they came out I mean, around either. the time i switched and I, I missed them and I, i'm going to play those but in my head for some reason in my head i've got sr and i've got amber moon I, in the same kind of place in my head one's a german trilogy one's a french trilogy anyway um but this isn't the first time that someone has come out with a, a, a remake uh, a faithful remake of an old game to make it more accessible. Um, and the first, the most famous I can think of is Ultima, because we've had the several Ultima projects uh, where you can play Ultima 4, Ultima 5, Ultima 6, and the most famous one is is Ultima 7, uh, the Exalt project, which made it, because, because Ultima was made to run well in a 486, the time you got to a Pentium, it didn't run run properly as well. So, so there was a even in the nineties, I think there was a um, there, there was modding going on, and they came out with Exalt, which allows you to play the the, the game in a in a modern engine. 
Um, yeah, because of Ultima, one of my uh, my several retro PCs is built specifically for Ultima 7 because I really wanted to, per to have the perfect PC for that. And it's uh, 486 with 33 megahertz and uh, it has to have uh, ESA, uh, ESA video card too because even on a VESA local bus video card, the lighting effects in the game run too fast. It's, it's, it's incredible. It really needs that one PC to be perfect. Yeah. So yeah. At one snapshot in time, there's, too slow, exactly. too fast, not very good. There's absolutely nothing in the game to say this this is the this is how the timing should work this is how a cycle should work in the game it just goes as fast as your cpu will go and i'm sure it could have been very easily coded the same happens in wing commander there's something about this these origin games where they just go right just go as fast as you can um and i remember i had a 486.33 perfect like you've described as soon as you went to something like a 66 dx266 it was going too quick and you had to use programs like moslo uh a memory resident program that would just burn your cpu burn up clock cycles to make it slower so it would run but um i think ian's gone down a wonderful route of making sure he's got the exact right hardware for the exact experience without playing with any of those things <laughs> yeah so neil can you think of any games you'd like to see rewritten this way to open them up to other people um well it's always nice to see old franchises opened up to other people um uh, looking at um, Amber Moon, it's got a nice selection of dungeon crawling, of of top down. It, it looks like it's got elements of all kinds of different role playing games. I haven't I haven't actually played it myself. This isn't one I've played. And um, the way you talk about it, and the way that Ian talks about it with such enthusiasm, really makes me want to go and pick it up and give it a go. But maybe I should just wait for this new open sourced version <laughs> and give it a go it, it's ready now go and do it's it ready now, now. it is ready now yeah. okay well there you go um do i need to get hold of the original game to get rip the assets out no. or nope no. just just okay we won't go into the legalities of that i will just try it out um but yeah any old games to be remade we recently saw the attempted remake well not attempted, completed remake of Colossal Cave in 3D with VR, which attempted to bring the original text adventure to um, the modern day masses. Um, it's hard to say if that's doing well because it's been out for a month now and it has 25, just 25 reviews on Steam. So mm. for a game that had such fanfare, it feels like it's not it getting should, much attention. Yeah, it feels like it should have a bit more attention. So um, I'm not sure. It's, it's a bit pricey. I think it's listed at something like 40, 30 or 40 pounds, isn't it, in Steam? So um, maybe it's time for a Steam sale to give that a kick up the backside. Um, so if I had to pick one, I'd pick probably um, maybe a lesser known RPG. Um, that I'd like to see in the modern day with uh, Dave's Dave's seen what I've made a note of and he's picked up the box. Um, so I'd like to see an RTX 3D VR all singing, all dancing version of Auto Jewel, which was published by Origin. Because I find with VR, I feel sick when I walk around. Um, that's still a problem for me. You can teleport around, but that kind of breaks the illusion a little bit. So if you do Auto Jewel, which is an RPG in a car, all your problems are solved. You can sit in the seat of the car, drive around, you know, RPG from a car in VR. So auto duel, that's my choice. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. Um, uh, Dave's uh, put, put a note in here for me to hand off to Ian now, and I think it's a little bit unfair because it says, Ian, you're an RPG fan. Tell us everything about Amber Moon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um... <laughs> I think uh, a lot of stuff was already told. I mean, I um, I actually played Amber Star and Amber Moon not too long ago because back in the day I I never had my Amiga anymore. When when these games came out, I was on the PC already. But I picked them up over the years and I played them actually in the years 2009-2010. So I was an adult already, um, understanding more of it. And they are great games. That's um, I started with Amber Star, and what I also really loved in these games are the um, I think it's Bard's Tale-like riddles that you have in here, or wizardry, wizardry-like riddles, where you have to answer, solve a riddle, and type in, really type in the answer. And um, yeah, it's dungeon crawling. It's it's great combat, and um, it's it, it's really it's really cool. And especially also the music in Amber Moon. The music in Amber Moon. This is definitely the best um, role-playing music in in of of Amiga, in my opinion. 
Well, that probably ties in nicely with the demo scene heritage of the group that made it, you know, yeah. to, to get awesome music out of the Amiga. Um, how does the music compare on the Atari, Dave? Oh, it wasn't released, was it? No, the the, 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 the sensible Atari ST owners had moved on to the PC by then, <laughs> rather than clinging on to an outdated, decrepit old system. <laughs> Dave, I know that you had... A, oh, sorry, Ian. Ian was holding something up there to show us. <laughs> I was just uh, un- unboxing uh, the, the, the Dragonflight here, and uh, I don't know if you have this one, but it's also it's a limited edition of the of the first game from Dalian. And uh, if you watch this manual like this, I mean, they don't do that anymore today, right? Um, do you oh, see the, 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 so the... Ian's holding up a ring-bound manual with um, some nice art of... Is that the different characters or the enemies? Yeah, that's um, the enemies. Skelet, beasts, balrons. It's also a lot of inspired by Ultima, if, if you look through it, with the, mm. with the monsters and everything. Borrowed from Ultima. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah it's, it's art. It's, it's, it's really great. Yeah. What was the name yeah. of the book that came in Ultima that had all the beasties in there? There was a name for it, wasn't Bestiary. there? Bestiary. Bestiary. There you go. There was there was different there was different names across different Ultimas as well. Um, but yeah, that, that that that's part of the experience of, of the Ultima games is, is is having the books there to to play through. And it was one of the few games that I didn't pirate. Um, yeah, and I, you, had the, you had, had those. You had all the flora and fauna in the book as well, and the regents yeah. and all of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Dave, you've had a chance to speak to the developers of this new um, remake, haven't you? Yeah. So th- th- there's one developer, um, Pyrocor, um, Pyrocor. I'm not sure, quite sure how to pronounce it. Um, and he's told me he's not too precious about how to pronounce it, so I'm not going to offend him. Uh, he's got a Discord, and I've spoken to him about it. Um, he has told me that the project is is complete and playable, so you can play his port of Amber Moon, which is called ambermoon.net, though that's not the website, it's complete. He's also done Amber Moon Advanced, so he started to enhance and add extra content to the original Amber Moon. So if you play Amber Moon now, if you play his version, you get to get extra content in it. So he's ported it across. You can play it on PC, Mac, and Linux, among other things. You can probably play it on other platforms, but he says those three work. Uh, it's ready to play. Um, he has also um, just 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 now, and um, it's not been noted anywhere else, but he has now produced a manual for it. So, as part of a way to help support the costs, he's now selling you selling a manual for Amber Moon Advanced. You can buy it uh, from from him direct. You can buy it on Amazon as well, or you will be able to buy it on Amazon very very soon. It's listed there, but not showing as in stock. It's not very expensive. I think it was about 12 or 13 euros. Some of the money goes to him, but most of it goes to the cost of producing the manual. And the manual is, is kind of, a, it's an essential thing to have if you're playing the game. And it's much nicer to have the manual in your hand than it is to have to look at a PDF thing. So if you're intending playing playing his game, buy the manual, help him out, or sign up to his Patreon to help him. He is going to do the... The sequel, the, the the trilogy, the the last game, the trilogy, which he he was able to tell me that Thalion had decided to call that Amber Worlds. So Amber Worlds will be the third part. He is going to do it. It's a project he does in his spare time. He works, and he says that at times he was working a hundred hours a week on this, in addition to his other job. Um, his wife wasn't too happy with the amount of time we're spending on it, although she is now supportive. He tells me um, he's got. Uh, two of the original developers, Eric Simon and Jury Hornman, uh, on his Discord. So that he's obviously got the, their blessing for the project. And they went on to do Albion, which is the box that, that Ian's got sealed there. And I mentioned at the start of the, of the show, DOS Game Club, because their podcast was talking about Albion. And they interviewed Eric and Jury this month. Uh, well, actually, they interviewed last month, but they released this month. So there's a, there's a bit of a, a crossover there because Albion is what they did afterwards. After Thalion went bust, they couldn't. I, 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 Amber, um, Albion is supposed to be a sequel to the Amber Moon uh, games. However, they couldn't use the they couldn't use that name uh, for legal reasons. Um, Perdicol also ported Settlers, a famous uh, Amiga game, to the PC. It's another German game. And it's from Blue Byte who did Albion. Ian, 
Um, when you said the title um, that was planned, Amber Worlds, I just remembered something. Do you also, um, I mean, you also know that back in the day they combined so much uh, fantasy with science fiction elements. I mean, Amber Moon did this too. Um, later on, you, you fly into space and actually it plays on the moon of the world. And then you have Might and Magic. With yeah, they, they really blended it. Wizardry yeah. with science yep. fiction, and even the first Ultimas also had spaceships yep. in it and fantasy. I think it was a great concept, which sadly they sometime later stopped doing <laughs> in the sequels. Links in the show notes. Go and have a look, download it, play it, enjoy it, um, and uh, perhaps buy the manual to help support it. But thank you very much for speaking to me, Perdicor. We are sponsored this week by. Pixeladic Magazine. Pixeladic Magazine is a monthly um, retro-themed magazine, not just about games. It has the whole the whole range of things in there. Um, it's a great read. It's available in your newsagent, maybe. Um, it's available worldwide. Uh, you can also go to their, their website, which is at, at pixel.addict.media, where you can subscribe, where you can buy PDF copies, or you can order physical copies to be delivered to you. I've been reading an article this week. I've been sitting down reading an article about someone creating a metal uh, pet computer case. Now, pet as in Commodore pet, because those old cases often take a battering. Every time I've seen a pet, they've been smashed up. So someone has made uh, what looks to be a fantastic one. So part one of the, the article is in this week in this month's magazine. Part two is in the next issue. So I'm looking forward to reading part two of that to see how it all comes out. Neil? Yeah, I'm looking forward to you sending down your photocopy that, as you do every month of the magazine to me so that I can have a read. I'm looking forward to reading <laughs> that. No, seriously, the, the Commodore Pet looks lovely. You can see it in all its silver glory. Hopefully um, hopefully waiting for a powder coating. Do you know if they're planning on doing that with the, the Pet? I don't. I don't know. I, 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 I don't, it's it's talking about the folded metal. Yeah. Um, but um, he said he wanted to be simple, but... Well, I'll change that later. He says perhaps, and then three dots. So he's left it left us hanging. Mike's left us yeah, hanging left for us hanging. part two. And also, um, it was nice to see some feedback from Ian Pixels at Dawn, who writes for the magazine and is very involved in it. Who I believe told us that a recent show, one of you guys, one of one of our listeners, went up to his stand and said, "Well, I better buy this because I heard you on um, this week in retro." So. You know, there you go. We're doing our job, guys. We're holding up our end of the bargain. <laughs> so thank you very much to the team at Pixel Addict for sponsoring us on our podcast. Lord Sugar has been in the news this week, making bold claims. And uh, let's be clear from the off, Sugar is the tycoon character in the UK version of The Apprentice, which is currently airing. So Obviously, he's pushing for some publicity at the moment, publicity of any nature. It's pretty clear to see what's going on here, but he does prompt a good discussion point. Um, here's his claim that he made in a newspaper this week. He says, we, we being Amstrad, made quality products, not like this Apple rubbish where you have to change it every time they bring out a new number. My stuff lasted forever. Right, just let that sink in. My stuff lasted forever. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lord Sugar's bold claim. Amstrad products were not only, um, you know, awesome, he says, and lasted forever, uh, but he, he's saying that they are better than apples because of that. Um, I've got some Amstrad CPCs that might disagree with that statement. He also boasts that Amstrad created the first video conferencing phone in the emailer range. I'm pretty sure I've heard him say that claim um, perhaps a year to the day ago when the last series of The Apprentice came out. I'm sure I've heard him banging on about how the Amstrad emailer was the first and how, um, you know, he was doing it with copper lines. And if it came out, you know, when broadband was around, which uh, highlights a little bit of a lack of Alan Sugar's knowledge because broadband did run on copper lines, um, <laughs> he claims that uh, it would have been even better and even bigger than anything Apple had ever done. But uh, there we go. As fond as I am of the Amstrad and the CPC being the first computer, I have always considered the Amstrad range to be budget. Um, perhaps not quite as budget as the Sinclair computers, but um, budget nonetheless. Uh, computers and consumer electronics. Uh, I wouldn't call them pioneers. I would call them, yeah, budget electronics makers. Um, I know, Dave, you're shaking your head there. Are you, are you are you thinking of something in particular that was pioneering from Amstrad? 
the PCW range. Uh, it was a really, yeah. it, it was, for what you got, it was tremendous. It was a, PCW was their uh, kind of reimagining of the CPC range, but for business. So it it, it, uh, it was just a, a mono screen, so a green screen, um, disc drives, three inch, of course. Um, and it, it was a really powerful business machine that could do CPM, um, for a, a really low price, I guess though you, it's back to what you're saying about the, the budget or value. But I, I, I felt that while the hi fi's were junk, and Techmoan's done a, re- a recent video on the hi fi's that shows that they're junk, hi fi's junk. Their computer range was actually really good. Hmm. I guess it's it, it's an easy trap to fall into to to consider budget to be um to, to lack innovation you know uh, trying to create something on a budget can actually drive innovation and i guess in the case of the pcw it, it did that it wasn't trying to be the fastest the flashiest have the most colors it was trying to serve a purpose at, at a price and it came out with something that not many or nobody else was doing at the time so um yeah i think you make a good point i, I think that's completely valid dave um so, but yeah, um, it is it is easy to to d- dismiss um, that perhaps, and this is question time now. Perhaps was Amstrad a true contender to Apple in its in its heyday? And we've got to remember that the landscape in the late eighties and early nineties was very different to how it is today, to where Apple sit today, and to where Amstrad, well. Am Am, what are they called now? Am something else now? They deal in property. Um, Amps prop maybe am's prop <laughs> roland goes Amsterdam. house shopping um <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah Amstrad had success with their 8-bit micros their low-cost pcs luggables don't forget those hi-fis as dave mentioned and in 1989 some of if not the first set-top boxes with the launch of um sky's satellite tv service here in the uk um, sorry, not when I say the first, I mean the first Sky satellite TV boxes that were, of course, set-top boxes before that, before you pick me up on that. Um, Amstrad were there and on the up, and Apple weren't doing too badly. Uh, in 1989, sales of their Macintosh range were up 35%. Sales of its higher-end computers, uh, top-end Macs, were reportedly quite poor. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't boom time for um, for, for Apple then. And then as we go into the 90s, Apple would lose its early successes, um, its early advantages with those successes with low-cost PCs to the likes of Dell and other computers that came along and and drove uh, budget PCs. And Apple's fortunes would decline to near bankruptcy in the 90s. So if anything, Amstrad were the more solvent of the two companies through this period. But again, that's not an indication of the quality of product, which brings us back to Alan Sugar's original point of Amstrad products were better than Apple's because they last. Amstrad would sell out for 127 million pounds, and and um, as I said, Alan Sugar is primarily concerned with property th- these days, which is why you will often see him on Twitter telling people <laughs> to stop working from home and get back into the offices without mentioning that he owns those offices. <laughs> uh, for Apple, of course, the turning point was the iPod and the iPhone and the huge success that that gave them. So it really isn't fair to try and make any kind of comparison with the Apple of today and the Amstrad that moved in technology circles back then. But Dave, was Amstrad the UK's Apple back in those times, back in the 80s and early 90s? And did they make better products? Well, better is a really difficult word to quantify, but I say yes, they did make better products than Apple. Um, I, I'm not a fan of Apple dropping the Apple II line in favour of the Mac. Um, they, 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 they deliberately um, made the, the 2GS not compete with the Mac. I, I'm not a fan of the Mac. I thought what Amstrad did with Amstrad Hi Fi's are rubbish, and I don't want to defend them at all. Watch Techmoan's video. Um, but what they did with the CPC, the PC, and the PCW was fantastic. They they brought a quality machine at a low price. It, 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 it didn't cut any corners that shouldn't have been cut. These days, budget or value usually, usually is, a, is a euphemism for regret. You buy it, and then you wish you'd bought the proper thing in the first place. I don't think people bought a CPC and got less than what they paid for. I think they got what they paid for. Same the PCW and their PC range was how can we do it, but do it acceptably. Um, 
for for a decent price. Although they did have some sharp practices about making sure they tied you into their their infra infrastructure. Um, Comparing them to Apple, though, it's just I, I just don't I can't think of them doing the same thing at the same time. I mean, uh, Apple were were just doing a different thing to what what Amstrad were doing. So there's no real there's no really equivalence between the two of them. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment, um, Ian. Let's come over to you in Germany. I mean, was uh, I know Amstrad would sometimes operated under the Schneider brand, but was yeah, there was yeah, was there true. was there anything I, under the Amstrad brand over there, or, or not at all? Not quite. Um, I, I that's really not my area. Um, I don't know much about the computers there. We just had Schneider HiFi stuff, and like you, you already said, it um, it, it was really a low budget, and it was not it, it was not good compared to um, to Technics or Panasonic Technics Panasonic and, and so for computers. I heard that Amstrad exists. I in the eighties nineties that was totally not my area. And about Apple Macintosh, I heard much later that they were really powerful computers, and yeah, that's that went past me mostly. Sure. So you didn't really, you didn't see, um, never mind Schneider, you didn't really see much in the way of Apple computers over there? Not even that here. Not totally not. Um, my first contact with Apple computers was much later when I was uh, even a youth, young, young adult. Then there were Apple Macintosh computers. People told me they were more powerful than Pentiums and so on. And I thought, oh, really? Are they? Mm. <laughs> but um, oh. Yeah, maybe they people. I don't even know this today. I'm I'm a PC guy. I'm I really build PCs, and I that's what I do. Yeah. Well, some, something that's sort of come in the other direction is you know Amstrad's went over and were branded as Schneiders over there. Something I got recently was was a Schneider Euro PC, which is an IBM PC under the Schneider brand, um, which somebody very kindly bought over to the Cape for me. So I'm looking forward to playing on on that. Um, Dave, you were bobbing up and down there. Did you have something to yeah, say? Yeah, I, I, I need to say, I need to confess that the reason why I don't think too kindly of Max is that my school threw out all the BBC micros and replaced them with Apple Macs. So right. I can never forgive it for that. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not sure where we sit here with this. I, I think... Well, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying Alan Sugar's claim that um, Amstrad was it's better than It's a talking point. I, 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 clearly, it's, it's a talking point. It's a very different type of product, like you say. It's like comparing a, a Casio watch to a, um, a, a, help me out here, a higher brand of watch. I don't want to say Rolex because I'm not going to compare <laughs> Apple to Rolex. A Tag watch, maybe, something like yeah. that. Where am I going with this? Um, but while we're on the subject of technology tycoons, uh, another link that was shared mm -hmm on the subreddit uh, was a tour of Jack Trammell's house. Did you see this? Um, so it was, it was a video that was taken about six months after his death. So it's going back some time now, um, but it had all of his possessions, all of his photos on the walls and things like that. And it was a tour of his house. Now, if you think somehow that Jack Trammell failed um, as the companies that he worked for went, uh, went under, um, this house tour failed. How can anyone think he's failed? What did he create, Neil? <laughs> so, if you think the uh, introduction of the Atari the ST, <laughs> thank you, is a badge of failure, then um, yeah, take a look at this tour of his house, uh, and it says um, something very different. I mean, there is a lot of marble in this house. There is a huge swimming pool out the back. There is. Um, there are there are things that are not particularly to my taste, like the kitchen. It looks like a, a Dalmatian has been spread all over the walls. <laughs> it's, it's a it's a very some very odd design choices. Um, I I would say exuberant, plush. Um, yeah, a lot of marble and a very very big house. So if you want to see how he lived in his final days, um, he wasn't short of a few bob. It's uh, yeah, retro tycoon cribs. Would you say it's a mug's eye full of a? Of a, of a tycoon's crib. I can see Alan Sugar living very happily in that house. <laughs> <laughs> so the link to that will be in the show notes if you want to go and take a tour. And also let us know your thoughts on our subreddit, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro, where you can uh, take part in the question of the week, which we'll be talking about later. You can comment and you can also submit stories for us to talk about and um, follow up on the stories that we talk about with all of those links. In the mid to late 90s, a 3D revolution was going on in games. Kicked off by the likes of Doom, 
Ultimate Underworld, and then Quake, Duke 3D, Blood, Descent, etc. By then, there was a push for hardware acceleration. And while several different cards and function sets, APIs, etc., competed, the first winner, the first one to get wide acceptance, was the legendary 3D FX Voodoo. Now, we've talked about the Voodoo before. Um, Ian is holding up a monster 3D one. Which that's that, is that Voodoo one? Yeah, that's Voodoo one for megabytes. The first Diamond Bill monster, the, the, the most original one, I think, the most known brand of the one of the Voodoo one. Yeah, the monster. <laughs> so that was the first one. Actually, I, I've I've only got I've I've got two Voodoo cards. It's only I've got a, a four megabyte and a six megabyte Voodoo one. Uh, six megabytes a wee bit unusual. Um, but they came out with several different cards. Um, the first one, though, was the legendary Voodoo. It, unleaked, it unlocked this massive leap in performance in games like Unreal and Quake. But it had a short life. But it was a bit special. The Voodoo was a bit special because graphics on a Voodoo using their feature set, they looked unique. You can recognize when you see when you see the panning shot and it's a panning shot and old and Unreal when you see it coming in, you see the reflection and so on. That's the, that's proper Voodoo. Um, but they kept going. And um, the end of 96 was the first Voodoo. So the very end of 1996, the first Voodoo came out. And by the end of 2000, they had gone, um, they had stopped producing cards. Uh, most of their 4,000 and 5,000 series were not released. Although the 4,500 and what Ian has there, the 5,500, yeah, they were uh, released. They were released. They did make it out. And um, that's, the, that's, that's the last one, isn't it? It's the last official one, yeah, yeah. That's the last official one, the 5500 PCI or HEP. And um, what's interesting to say about these is that they had a special anti-aliasing mode, full scene anti-aliasing, that really disappeared together with this card. It was gone. And it came back in the year 2009 for AMD cards or ATI, and it came back in 2010 with NVIDIA cards. And even today, or then, you had to activate the special uh, anti-aliasing mode via NVIDIA Inspector. It, it doesn't work um, just via drivers. So it's, it's really... Uh, it's really great to see with this card, some, some games with this anti-aliasing mode, it looks totally different. That's really... Voodoo, of course, was the first SLI, and they did SLI differently, but NVIDIA then bought them, and that's why they had SLI. A story submitted by Happy Coding ZX, and it's talking about a prototype Voodoo that was never released, the Voodoo 5 6000. Um, he submitted the article from Tom's Hardware, where they were talking about getting to five thousand five hundred dollars, Neil. Why is it, why is Ian not holding up a box with a Voodoo five six thousand? Ian, wait, wait, wait. Uh, that's just because there, there are no boxes for this card. Right? <laughs> but he says in a crate. <laughs> I could hold up two boxes of Voodoo three three thousand maybe. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> there is an auction on for um, this card. It is now sitting at $12,600 for this prototype. And the auction notes that it, it is fully functional. It was close to release. So it's not as if you're buying a card that can just go up the wall. You can put it in and you can use it, although you may not get your entire money's worth from it. Um, the auction doesn't finish, though, until Monday the 13th of February, around 3 p.m. Universal Standard Time. Uh, it is now 5 p.m. at This moment is now 5 p.m. on the 6th of February. Um, so there's still, there's still almost a week to go before this finishes. So I don't know what it'll finish at. Um, now, I personally feel that once you get beyond the kind of Voodoo 1, there's not as much utility in having them because games went from using the Glide API to using um, Direct3D. And then the, the Voodoo card is only really doing what another card does. But Ian, I know that you have a bit of a, a, a liking for Voodoo cards, particularly the later ones. So would you like a Voodoo 5, 6,000? Have you got, have you got, $20,000 sitting around? Can you justify using the later ones? <laughs> well, actually, um, I have prepared something. And of course, I would buy this oh. card immediately. But oh. last year, on uh, April 1st, I built myself a Voodoo 
Uh, quad SLI Voodoo Ooh. 5 setup here, so, so I'm totally good with that. Uh, wow. Yeah. So no, I'm I'm fine, but it only works on April 1st, of course, so I plan oh, to... You got me. You got me. I, I was about to launch into all sorts of questions there. About, how does that work? I plan, <laughs> I plan to to run 3D Mark uh, on April 1st this year, so maybe you can join me then. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Dave, I think I'm in the same uh, sort of boat as you. As far as I'm concerned, 3D FX peaked with, I would say, the Voodoo 2, not the Voodoo 1, because uh, probably just because of personal experience. I had the Voodoo 1, I had the Banshee, which was had a 2D and 3D mm. combined. Uh, yeah. yeah, it wasn't the first. In fact, Ian, you told me that earlier before we started recording that you had the first generation of 2D, 3D combined um, 3D effects yes, cards. Yes, it was called Voodoo Rush, yeah. But mm -hmm. uh, it, 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 uh, it by far didn't work as good as when you had separate cards. So I had a lot of trouble with it, actually, back then. Some games just refused to run, but they they ran with, um, with separate cards when you had the, the Diamond Monster here. So later on, I had the diamond. Uh, no, I had uh, this here. This is actually my own from back in the day. My uh, 3D blaster with Voodoo Two, and yeah, and then I had the Voodoo Five. So that that was my my story there. It is one of those things that makes you feel a bit like a dinosaur if you speak to a modern PC gamer, isn't it? When you, when you say, "Well, I had my 2D card, but then I had to buy my 3D graphics card to get to go with it," you know, it's just assumed that it's just one thing. You know, graphics cards a graphics card, but uh, we had to go through that weird period of having separate cards. Um, so the the Banshee, um, like the like the Rush, was combined, but slightly better. Um, and then um, you know. People got Voodoo threes, fine. Uh, you know they were decent cards, but the direct three D era was coming in with the might of Microsoft behind it pushing that um, API. Nvidia caught up as as Dave spoke about. Um, so I think if you were still using a Voodoo card in the in the five or the four or the five era, then um, you know I wouldn't call you mad. I would just say that you were extremely extremely loyal to the brand to still be using that, um, Ian. Well, you there's still the thing I, I said earlier. Um, the anti-aliasing mode can't mm. compare to the NVIDIA cards of oh, that area. Yeah. Just a few weeks ago, uh, my my wife and I installed No One Lives Forever again. That's uh, that's a kind of niche game, great shooter mm. game. And um, we compared it on my uh, FX, GeForce FX 5950 Ultra with the best anti-aliasing setting. It looks nice. It's okay. But when you install this game and... and make it on the Voodoo 5, you have this full scene anti-aliasing, which, um, which makes anti-aliasing across the whole the whole picture, not only edges and so, and um, that's like super sampling, sparse crit super sampling. My English isn't good enough to really explain the technical yeah, sure, aspects sure. here, but I can tell you it, it would be something for the cave. The Voodoo 5, test your, your, your 3D games with the Voodoo 5 and judge yourself. The difference is not, it, it's not only big, it's day and night difference. It's, it's really, it's really a, a different picture. You have to see it, best on a CRT. And by, the, and by this point, the Voodoo 5 was running these games in direct 3D or was it still using Glide? That doesn't matter. That doesn't no, matter. It, no, it, no, it no. can do the direct 3D. Um, it, it, the anti-aliasing works in both modes. It open, it, actually, it's, it's OpenGL or direct 3D. And it does it better than every other card. And well, in today's games, you can activate it again since 2010, but not before. It, only yeah. then can you activate it. Yeah, that's that's something not so much known, but it's it, that's why these cards still sell for seven hundred, six hundred dollars on eBay. These Voodoo Five cards, mm. and I do seem to remember that in that era of the four and the five Voodoo cards, they did carry a premium. If you wanted to go down the Voodoo route, you were normally paying a little bit more than you would be for other could brands. Could be, could yeah. be. I had a Voodoo Five HEP card, and yeah, it was slower than the rest, but it was better looking. That's something that's overlooked. Wow, that's something. That so it's like me. I've, oh, you beat me to it, Dave. You beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, this isn't even the prototype that I'd want from 3DFX. The prototype I'd want is the one that they were doing in 2000, as well as the 4000 and 5000 range. They were doing the Spectre range. Now, they never came out with a Spectre card, but I, I imagine 
a Spectre card sounds even cooler than Voodoo. I mean, Voodoo sounds good, but Spectre. What kind of card have you got? Spectre. That's the one I want. Time now for our community question of the week. So last week's question was um, all about car games, I seem to remember. No, it wasn't. It was about <laughs> arcade cabinets. So, no, Every other show was about car racing games. <laughs> so uh, the question was, if you could have one arcade cabinet in your living room, what would it be? And there's also an answer there from producer Duncan, who says, I would pick a full-scale Ridge Racer. Not See it properly. A full-scale Ridge Racer, not strictly a cabinet, but who cares? I care, Duncan, because I set the question, and um, you, you know, it's not a cabinet. So <laughs> he says, "Who needs a sofa when you have a full-size MX-5?" I mean, he's going to have a big lounge. He's going to have to have a big doorway to get that in, and um, well, that's his choice. So um, let's go to the answers from our listeners. Dave, would you like to read the first one out? Yeah, Paul Icky Hermsky says. <laughs> I like this answer. I should try not to laugh. I've just read this question to my wife. The answer to this is sadly none. Oh. I've been warned and threatened with what would happen if she came home to see an arcade cabinet in our living room. I can't repeat what she said. <laughs> oh, Paul. Yeah. Um, our, our second answer, uh, Ian, do you want to take that one? Is this the, the Ice Runner then? Yes. Yeah. From Ice Runner Origin. Yeah. APB by Atari, not the world's best arcade game, but one packed with memories for me. Mm, APB. Yeah, APB had, um, did it have the two lights at the top that flashed? It, I think it also had a little stool so you could sit down and play, and, and, and it had a wheel that had, had no force feedback or no resistance. It was just one of those big wheels that you could really spin like Super Sprint in games like that. Um, yeah. Did, did you guys play APB much or at all? I played it because my brother... My brother talked about it. Remember when I first got Mame, he said, "Oh, get me APB," because we used to play that, and I don't remember playing it, but I have. Oh well, the pr the premise was you would um, drive around in your car, catch the catch the criminal, take them back to the PlayStation, and then you would have to waggle the joystick to throttle the, the PlayStation, criminal. not the Xbox. Uh, the, the PlayStation. Um, <laughs> that's you. <laughs> that's, that's you getting me back for Sam and Max, isn't it? Um, Sam and, and you, Max was good. <laughs> you would have to throttle the criminal. Well, at this point, an innocent citizen to get a confession out of them so that you could look them up. <laughs> <laughs> so it's quite realistic then. Yeah. Ian, did you ever play APB? No, no, I don't even. What about arcade in general? Were there any arcades in your area growing up, Ian? Not really. No, not really. I I always uh, like to see them on, on TV or something, but uh, no, we didn't nope. have any gaming halls. That was not, maybe on the base on the American side of our community, but not here, no. Sure. At least not for my age. I was too young also, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'll read the third answer out now. This is from Richard Shears. He says, oh, an easy answer this week, assuming we're allowed to ignore such conveniences as physical space. Well, I think Duncan's already set the precedent on that. He says, Star Wars, the sit-down arcade version, naturally. Why, I don't hear anyone ask, he says, it was the second arcade game I played, the first being Choplifter. It consumed more lunch money coins than any other. Sorry, Mum, but the chips only cost 35p. Oh, Richard, taking a pound from his mum for the chips, I reckon, and then <laughs> putting the rest into Star Wars or Choplifter. That's the um, way. It's very popular. And um, oh, he, said, he also says, if I can in indulge in a second answer, if I had any friends that still lived near me, then Gauntlet. Yes, also a good choice. Um, but yeah, let's just go back to Star Wars, Dave, because there was a little bit of um, yoke news wasn't there? Yeah, I, so I, I haven't got a jingle for Yoke News. Sorry, but just take no, it away. Um, it's ex exciting though. Um, <laughs> I um, I got a little bit of a, a little bit of a suggestion from someone last week, and it was don't buy the the one up machine, which I'm I'm not going to buy. I I, I think I'd pretty much decided by the end of that that I wasn't going to buy the one up machine, and it was um, a suggestion to get uh, a yoke. The GRS Flight Yoke, which is um, Glenn's Retro uh, Shop, I think, or re Glenn's Retro something. Let's see if I can find out what it is. <laughs> Glenn's Retro, I wasn't prepared for this. Sorry, I did called. spring it on you. I know you'd been meant talking yeah. about it. 
Anyway, I, I can talk though. So he's made this thing. It's $200, so I don't know what it costs for me to get in the UK. It looks identical to the arcade cabinet, both the, the one-up cabinet and the real cabinet. It's much better than the one-up one. It's made really as an upgrade for the, the arcade one-up cabinet, but it's got a USB connection, so you could use it on a PC, and I presume I could get it working on uh, on uh, a mystery Star Wars ever comes to that. So that would be the way I would do it. I've had a look and um, I've tried this emulator called AAE, which is one that stopped development in 2008. It's a vector emulator and the screen on it looks so much nicer on this AAE than it does on MAME. Uh, it really brings vector games to life. So I, I would say that I don't want a CRT for it. I want a, a modern, um, really bright, crisp um flat panel display for it in 4.3 of course for it but it's the controls that matter i've tried a mouse i've tried the stv the st version of star wars is the best one i found i tried an analog joystick on the pc on mame it, it was rotten so that's what to get the is the yoke to get for that for my arcade cabinet if i build one it'll be that 200 dollar, no doubt 300 pounds yoke so our question of the week for this week is uh, it's going to call back to um, the tour of uh, the house that we, that we went on. I want to know if you could go on a tour of any famous technology or even gaming person's house, um, who would it be and what would you expect to find in their house? Hmm. You can you can answer that um, over on our subreddit, reddit.com forward slash are forward slash this week in retro where it will be pinned at the top and you can also submit your stories for us to talk to whose house would you like to go on a tour of whose house this is Who so lives easy in a house like this oh ian's got an answer go on, Ian. this is so easy to answer what's your answer ian <laughs> richard garriador oh, oh yeah it's yeah. castle i mean castle i mean people paid ten thousand dollars for his uh shroud of the avatar thing here to to, to yeah. come and visit him in his house yeah. and i had a dinner with him that ideal answer there we go so who can top that richard garriott and um yeah, well, what would you expect to find in his house? I think a museum of artifacts, um, things from going into Regents. outer space, hidden rooms, all of that good stuff. Yeah, fantastic. Moonstones. Yeah. Ian, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out yeah. with us today and share your thoughts. Um, you can find out a lot more about Ian using the links in the show notes. Go and check out his YouTube channel. And um, we will see you all next week. Thank you very much for listening and watching, everyone. Take care. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC The Cave, Chris from 005 Agema, and Dave. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.